American democracy doesn't work that way. We don't govern by temper tantrum. <laughs> oh, yes, we do, Chuck. Where you been? Haven't noticed? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI and Round Mountain on KKRN and in Eureka on KGOE. Also heard in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and Cottage Grove on KSO in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Goldendale, Washington on KVGD, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Deprogrammed Radio and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, before we get to uh, even more temper tantrums on Wednesday... Uh, and all of the insanity from Donald Trump's White House remarks on Tuesday night. Some brighter news, Desi Doyen. Oh, good. You're welcome in advance. <laughs> uh, well, we talked uh, on our program yesterday uh, about the U.S. Supreme Court, who had rejected a bid yesterday from Virginia Republicans to block a court-mandated redistricting thanks to racial gerrymandering in 12 state legislative districts, um, Supreme Court said, nope, we're not going to block that uh, court mandate. You have to fix, you have to redistrict these maps that have been racially gerrymandered in Virginia. That was good news for Democrats on Tuesday. And then by Tuesday night, more good news for Democrats in Virginia. Uh, Virginia State Delegate Jennifer Boisco won Virginia State Senate District 33 in the first special election of 2019. Wow. Yes, the elections never stop. Uh, and uh, she won by a huge margin. She will replace Jennifer Wexton, who resigned her seat after winning election to the U.S. House in November Boisco's victory over Republican Joe May, as I said, was huge. It was a 70 to 30 uh, percent Split? race. Yeah, wow. 40 point, a 40 point margin 
Wexton had previously won the seat in the same state Senate district by 14 points, 57-43, back in 2015. But Boisco won by 40 points. Now, Hillary Clinton's margin in that same district uh, a year after the previous Democrat had won by 14 points, Hillary Clinton, uh, Clinton's margin went uh, up to, what was it, a 32-point margin. But Boisco improved on that on Tuesday by almost eight points. So the blue wave of 2018 is continuing into the new year, into 2019, it appears. Former talk radio host uh, Mark Levine, I used to be guest on his show back in the day. He's now a state delegate for Virginia's 45th district. Uh, He sent an email last night noting that in the 150 years since Reconstruction, Virginia has never had a progressive majority in the legislature. Uh, Indeed, uh, one could well argue, he said, that in our 400 years of history, Virginia has never had a significant progressive trifecta with a governor and a majority of the House of Delegates and Senate. But, he added, that could now very possibly happen in November of 2019 when uh, the state holds its next off-year election. That's right, because Virginia holds elections in off-years. Off-years, correct. So, all right, well, there endeth the good news for today. (laughs) And we move on to, uh, yes, the temper tantrums and insanity As the government remains shut down, uh, talks between President Trump and congressional Democrats aimed at ending a partial government shutdown collapsed in acrimony and disarray Wednesday. According to The Washington Post, with the president walking out of the White House meeting and calling it, quote, a total waste of time after Democrats rejected his demand for border funding. Well, who could have seen that coming? AP says the brief session in the White House Situation Room ended almost as soon as it began. Democrats said they asked Trump to reopen the government, but he told them if he uh, if he did, they wouldn't give him money for the wall. Republicans said Trump posed a direct question about it to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. If he opened the government, would she fund the wall? And she said no. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer said Trump then slammed his hand on the table and walked out. This all happened just before airtime. Um, and so uh, whose uh, who's, who story should be believed here is still unclear. Republicans said that Trump, who passed out candy at the start of the meeting, uh, did not raise his voice and there was no table pounding. Trump continued, however, to demand more than $5 billion for his U.S.-Mexico border wall as a condition for reopening the government, while Democrats say they will not agree to any new money for a border wall. Trump uh, himself tweeted, uh, quote, just left a meeting with Chuck and Nancy, a total waste of time. I asked what's going on, what's going to happen in 30 days if I quickly open things up. Are you going to approve border security, which includes a wall or steel barrier? Nancy said no. I said bye bye. Nothing else works. Uh, Schumer said, again, we saw a temper tantrum, which is uh, a description he used on Tuesday night following Trump's Oval Office address in the uh, in the Democratic reply from uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. 
Republicans and Democratic lawmakers then took turns addressing reporters at the White House uh, today after this meeting fell apart, trading blame and accusing each other of mischaracterizing the meeting and being intransigent. It's cold out here and uh, the temperature wasn't much warmer in the Situation Room. Our meeting did not last long. Well, the president walked into the room and passed out candy. <laughs> it was true. I want to turn the floor over, the president said, to Speaker Pelosi and Schumer. Tell us what offer you have. She began to argue whether we even have a crisis or whether facts are true. Turned to Schumer again, who said, we just have to open the government up. I asked him to open up the government, that tomorrow so many people will have trouble paying their mortgages, paying their bills, dealing with situations when they don't get paid. And I said, just why won't you do that? We'll continue to discuss. We're willing to discuss anything. And he said, you, if I open up the government, you won't do what I want. That's cruel. I saw Schumer continue to raise his voice. The president then turned to the speaker and politely asked her, okay, Nancy, if we open the government up in 30 days, could we have border security? She raised her hand and said, no, not at all. The president calmly said, I guess you're still not wanting to deal with the problem. He sort of slammed the table. And when Leader Pelosi said she didn't agree with the wall, he just walked out and said, we have nothing to discuss. So, so he said it was a waste of his time. I, I don't recall him ever raising his voice or slamming his hand. That was uh, Mike Pence there, uh, along with Kevin McCarthy. The, the House uh, Minority House, Leader now. Mm, that's right. Minor, I almost said Majority Leader. You're right. Minority <laughs> Leader, uh, along with uh, Chuck and Nancy outside the White House. Uh, after what seems, frankly, uh, to be totally predictable that this meeting fell apart. Uh, you know what else was totally predictable? That Trump's Oval Office remarks on Tuesday night carried by all of the television networks after many critics, including us, warned that it would contain little more than long ago debunked propaganda and Fox News talk talking points that that speech actually contained little more than long ago debunked propaganda and Fox News talking points. Who could have foreseen it? We will be joined by Media Matters media critic Matt Gertz, who did foresee it, to discuss uh, what the networks must have been thinking when they agreed uh, to air Trump's Oval Office speech. The same networks who refused to air White House remarks from Barack Obama on immigration back in 2014 because they said at the time, that uh, Obama's address would be, quote, overtly political. Huh. We will talk to uh, Matt about that and much more momentarily. Uh, the Post noted after today's White House negotiations fell apart with Trump walking out that it was not clear when or if negotiations would begin anew on Saturday. Uh, the partial shutdown will become the longest continuous shutdown in U.S. history. AP says one result was certain. The shutdown plunged into new territory with no endgame in sight. That is very bad news, not just because of the politics, but because of the 800,000 federal workers who will apparently not be getting their expected paycheck this week. 
as the shutdown pushes on for nearly three weeks now, and it is getting very difficult for a lot of those workers. You heard Chuck Schumer there say that a lot of them were going to have trouble paying their mortgages. New York Times writes about exactly that today citing a bunch of these workers who are having a lot of t- a lot of trouble making ends meet and things could get worse uh, very quickly here. Uh, they cite Tanisha Keller, a single mother who works for the Federal Census Bureau. She used to live paycheck to paycheck. Now she's living nothing to nothing, says the Times. Payday would have come this week for Keller, who is 42 years old. And many of the other 800,000 federal workers across the country who are caught up in this shutdown mess. Keller's bank balance has dipped to negative $169. She can no longer afford the $100 stipend she used to send to her son Daniel uh, to help out with his college books and groceries. She does not know how she will make next month's rent of $1,768 on her apartment in Maryland or how she will cover the bills that automatically debit from her checking account, or even how she will gas up the car she has been trying not to drive. Since December 22, furloughed workers and those working without pay have been living off their savings, their credit cards, and the last paychecks that landed in their accounts. And as Trump warns that the shutdown could last months or years, he said... If Democrats do not agree to fund his border wall, unpaid federal workers across the country uh, are growing increasingly desperate and furious at the political impasse. A furloughed health communications worker in Dallas applied for a temp job at his local YMCA. An international development worker in Washington is scrounging for babysitting gigs. A wildfire uh, I'm sorry, wildland firefighter in western Colorado sold his truck to pay next month's bills. Uh, Many employees would normally receive a paycheck this Friday, according to a former official at the Office of Budget and Management, but that looks like it is not going to happen. In Orlando, Florida, Joe Rojas, a federal corrections officer, starting a side job for Uber to help pay next month's mortgage payment. Average government employees' weekly take-home pay is about $500, According to the American Federation of Government Employees, a labor union representing about 700,000 workers, food pantries in Maine, in Colorado, on Long Island and elsewhere are offering help to federal workers. They have no resources, said uh, Shelley Carver, a furloughed employee uh, of the uh, Internal Revenue Service in Ogden, Utah. She said she's worried not just about paying her own business expenses, but also about helping her three adult children. Belkis Collin, who turns 51 on Wednesday, makes less than $52,000 a year as an investigator in the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity at the Department of Housing and Urban, Urban Development. She would normally be paid by direct deposit at the end of the week, and she is terrified about what missing this paycheck will mean. She is most afraid of not being able to pay the roughly $1,400 in rent for her apartment in the Bronx and being kicked out on the street. She said, I'm just scared that this is going to be for a long time, and I'm a single woman. What is going to happen with me? Who could help me? For now, she's trying to spend as little money as she can. She's not buying any groceries except for milk. 
She's cleaning out her cupboards to eat. She said she's mostly living on cereal, bread, and crackers and other packaged food that you buy when food shopping and then nobody ends up eating. This is very real. This is a very real crisis for a whole lot of people around the country, a whole lot of family. That that 800,000, those 800,000 workers translates into 800,000 families. And those are salaried workers and part-time workers. They might get reimbursed if Congress agrees to do so after this shutdown, if it ends, when it actually ends. But contractors like janitors and other folks who work through third-party companies, Mm. they won't get reimbursed. Angela Tucker is 44 years old. She's working without pay as a corrections officer at a federal prison near Seattle. She says everything else has become a balancing act. Mind you, she is working. She's a corrections officer at a federal prison. They can't just send them home. They have to stay there and work even when they are not getting paid. She says, I'm on a lot of medications because I'm a year out from being a breast cancer survivor. Mm. So I have to make the decision, do I refill all of my medications even before I need them because I might not have the money later? Or do I pay for the child care? Or do I buy food? What makes things more challenging, uh, even more challenging, uh, said Ms. Tucker, uh, who has been uh, 15 years on this job, is that the prison is also shorthanded. So people are not just being required to work one shift without pay, but often two in a row, 16 hours on the job, and she's not being paid. And she's a breast cancer survivor deciding whether she should buy medicine or food or pay for child care. Matt Camp, a uh, 49-year-old uh, wildland uh, firefighter in Montrose, Colorado, who uh, sold his truck for 8600 to keep paying for the house and to keep the lights and heat on, yeah, in Colorado in, in the middle winter. of winter. Uh, like many federal workers, Camp said he loves his job and the idea of working for something bigger than himself, but he does not know how many more payless paydays He can endure. If this drags out till the end of January, I don't know what we're going to do. But, you know, Donald Trump, he passed out candy at the beginning of the meeting. It's not like he doesn't care. It's not like he's not trying. Uh, We're all being tried here. Indeed. And, you know, this... What I don't understand is, hey, Trump and Republicans had two years with total control of both houses of Congress and the White House. They could have gotten this done if they'd really wanted to. Well, uh, let's take a quick break here and uh, come back and talk about what uh, talk about this. uh, These remarks from the White House on Tuesday night. Uh, And frankly, I hate to even bother covering it. I hate to even bother wasting time covering it. But you know what? Uh, Every single television network, the entertainment networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, whatever, they all turned over time on the on our public airwaves for this speech, for the propaganda and nonsense that Donald Trump put out on Tuesday night. Why did they do that? Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about what happened last night. And we'll be joined by Matt Gertz of Media Matters, uh, who says the networks got played. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. (laughs) 
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. It is. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In a nine-minute speech on Tuesday night that made no new arguments but included multiple misleading assertions at best, according to the uh, New York Times' Peter Baker, the, uh, the president sought to recast the situation at the Mexican border as a humanitarian crisis, a crisis of the heart, a crisis of the soul, he said. It was his first primetime Oval Office address, and it was in response to the ongoing federal government shutdown now in its third week, the second longest in U.S. history. As Trump continues to demand $5.7 billion to begin construction of his long-promised southern border wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for. Donald Trump did not, for now at least, declare a national emergency in order to bypass Congress and reallocate defense funds to, uh, and, and use the military to build the wall, as he had threatened to. And he largely regurgitated old, often debunked talking points that he has made in the past. In their own televised response on Tuesday night, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer accused the president of stoking fear and mocked him for asking taxpayers to foot the bill for a wall that he had long said Mexico would pay for. Pelosi said in her remarks, President Trump must stop holding the American people hostage, must stop manufacturing a crisis, and must reopen the government. Schumer argued, American democracy doesn't work that way. We don't govern by temper tantrum. Well, now we do. The Toronto Star's Washington bureau chief, Daniel Dale, quoted Liam Donovan, a Republican strategist and lobbyist, describing the Oval Office remarks as, quote, less about getting the wall built and more about getting out of this shutdown jam without being seen as capitulating. I would add without being seen as a loser. Too late. The shutdown has denied pay to about 800 thousand federal workers. It has stopped or slowed hundreds of government activities from inspections of government housing to the financing of home loans to cleanup services at national parks. And it has produced a growing number of headlines in which Trump voters now struggling to pay their own bills have complained that he is harming their lives without a good cause in this shutdown. Dan Dale, who has made a name for himself as one of the most dogged fact checkers of Trump's live speeches and rallies, reported that Trump has been so dishonest about immigration that his mere request for television airtime set off a furious debate about media ethics, 
with critics arguing that network broadcast executives were doing the public a disservice merely by giving this president unfiltered airtime. He writes, the concerns proved justified. Among other things, he notes Trump falsely claimed Democrats had asked him to build a steel barrier rather than a concrete wall, which is an alternative that he came up with himself. He falsely claimed a wall would be indirectly funded through his revised NAFTA deal, which in fact has not been approved by Congress and could not fund the wall. He falsely said the Democrats would not pony up for border security which, in fact, they have offered to pay for various security measures, just not a wall. Even though, by the way, they previously had offered some $25 billion to Donald Trump for that wall in a deal to protect immigrants brought here as children years ago. Trump also misleadingly suggested a wall would be a significant obstacle to smuggled heroin, But in fact, most of that heroin, according to the 2018 annual drug threat assessment by Trump's own U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, comes in via legal ports of entry in cars and trucks, not in areas where the wall would be built if it ever was. Questions about why the networks were willing to give up the airtime for a political speech by this president were buttressed afterwards when the Daily Beast reported that the president had sought advice on the government shutdown from Fox News hosts Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs, who both reportedly told Trump to, quote, push forward for the wall funding and break the Democrats' will. In fact, A Media Matters mashup video today reveals that much of Trump's remarks on Tuesday night, sometimes word for word, were ripped straight from Hannity and Dobbs's show on Fox News. Here's some of that montage with comments from Hannity's previous shows and guests from uh, Dobbs shows side by side with some of Trump's Oval Office remarks on Tuesday night. And please note here, there is a lot of misleading uh, information in these remarks, but I want to play it just to give you a taste of how Trump appears to have simply recycled talking points directly from his friends at Fox News in order to spread them to a far broader audience last night on every broadcast network over our public airwaves. Over a 10-year period, total Americans killed from illegal drugs coming across the southern border will be nearly three times higher than the total number of U.S. troops killed in Vietnam. More Americans will die from drugs this year than were killed in the entire Vietnam War. Now, in the past two years alone, criminal aliens, they have been responsible for approximately, look at this number, 235 thousand violations of the law, including 4,000 homicides, 30,000 sex crimes, and get this, over 100,000 violent assaults. Including those charged or convicted of 100,000 assaults, 30,000 sex crimes, and 4,000 violent killings. And one out of every three migrant women, those that try to make the trip to our southern border, sadly, tragically, evil occurs and they are assaulted sexually. One in three women are sexually assaulted. Last month alone, 20,000 children were smuggled or trafficked right here into the United States. Last month, 20,000 migrant children (laughs) were illegally brought into the United States. 
Look at Nancy Pelosi's wall around her mansion. Look at John Kerry's wall around his Italian villa. Look at George Soros's wall around his compound. They all have their walls. Some have suggested a barrier is immoral. Then why do wealthy politicians build walls, fences, and gates around their homes? You lock your door. You lock your door because you want to know who's coming into your home. It's not because you hate the people outside. It's because you love the people inside. They don't build walls because they hate the people on the outside, but because they love the people on the inside. So, yeah, you get the idea. TV pundits moved quickly to correct or challenge many of Trump's false assertions after the address. ABC White House correspondent Cecilia Vega noted just because you say it's a crisis doesn't necessarily make it one. NBC's Chuck Todd noted that Trump made a lot of dubious claims and that his speech lacked any new information and was essentially a rewritten version of his stump speeches. CBS News' Major Garrett, formerly of Fox News, noted, quote, the primetime platform was new. The arguments very, very familiar with no new proposals from the president or any hint of concessions that might resolve the ongoing government shutdown. So with no new policy announcements and no new news, and in fact stuff ripped almost word for word from Fox News's right wing pundits, why did the broadcast networks agree to air the remarks in the first place, as many had argued they should not in advance? In short, argues Media Matters' Matt Gertz, the networks got played. Joining us now is Matt Gertz, senior fellow at the watchdog nonprofit Media Matters for America and the organization's research director during the 2016 election. Matt Gertz, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You bet. Uh, this uh, seems like a uh, a train wreck that a lot of us saw coming. Even folks at the networks seemed to see it coming, but they played along with it anyway. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think this was incredibly predictable, and we know this because we predicted it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, there was this fierce debate that was roiling uh, the media sphere mm -hmm. uh, after the president asked for... Uh, time for this address, we had uh, a lot of critics saying, look, uh, if you give him this time, he's just going to use it to lie to your audiences. Uh, and then the networks decided to do it anyway. Um, yeah, I think it was very disappointing, pretty cowardly. Uh, and the result was exactly what we said was going to happen. Uh, the president used his time to lie to the public, to claim that there was this massive crisis. Uh, along the border, uh, and to show for his wall, um, you know, as everyone was able to say after the fact, there was no new news uh, in his speech, but that, you know, the, the obvious, uh, you know, notion that that was what was going to happen didn't keep any of these executives from turning over their airwaves to the president. So he had unfiltered access uh, to their audiences uh, to make his case, and only after the fact, you know, if people stuck around after he stopped talking, uh, did anybody hear that a lot of what he was saying was total nonsense? And, uh, you know, it also had the uh, the desired effect, you note, over in a uh, column today at Media Matters, that, uh, you know, all of the print newspapers gave above-the-fold coverage to this speech, which included no new news. Um, and, and yet, and in fact, here we are, 
on on this show giving up airtime to this speech in which there was no new news. And yet the reason I think it's important is because we're sort of we're three years on or so from the 26 uh, 2016 campaign. Networks had seemed to turn backflips for Trump at the time. Then when he when he you know reportedly won the election, all the networks and cable news outlets began this process of sort of navel gazing, asking whether they were too deferential to Trump coverage. And yet here we are again, Matt. Uh, it doesn't seem like this is getting any better and or that they're learning any lessons. Am I wrong? I, I don't think you are. This is the fundamental question of the last few years. Is Donald Trump something unique, a, a distinct challenge that requires journalists to behave in some way different from what they've done in the past? Or is he a president like any other who deserves the same sort of deference? Typically, uh, you know, we assume that uh, the president has a certain power to direct the public's attention, and people are generally understanding and, and fine with that, right? There's a certain mm-hmm. amount of uh, resources that news outlets have. They have to make choices about what they cover and what they don't, and they tend to cover uh, what the president is pointing to because he's the president, and that's just sort of how this works. The problem is with Donald Trump, the things that he focuses on are bizarre phantasms and crazy conspiracy theories. <laughs> right. And when you give those things a lot of attention, what you're doing is diverting the public's attention from actual news and things that are uh, really having an impact on their lives. And you end up with you know, what we saw in the last couple of weeks before the election, where all of the cable outlets and, and newspapers were running nonstop coverage about this uh, migrant caravan. And we have what we saw last night and this morning, where uh, all of the broadcast and cable networks are covering the speech from the president in which he claims that there's a crisis. They all know that this is nonsense, uh, but they just can't look away. They can't sort of contextualize it. And the next day, you end up with all the newspapers running giant uh, headlines uh, about mm-hmm. what the president did last night. It totally diverts the public's attention from issues that actually matter. And uh, the problem, it seems to me, is sort of twofold here in that, um, you know, when when y- the, the question about how do you, you know, deal with this president, is he different or does he, you know, deserve the same deference that any others get? But you write today at Media Matters that the very same networks refused airtime to President Obama back in 2014 for a speech on immigration where he actually uh, was announcing some rather large and serious policies, whether you liked them or not. Um, But the networks did not air those remarks. So, you know, an argument could be made that, sure, he's a president. He's asking for this uh, time. He should get it. But the networks didn't give it to the last president uh, when he requested it. I think the uh, executives here are being quite disingenuous and deceptive in what they're doing. They're claiming that they really, their hands were tied. There was nothing they could do. He's the president of the United States. He was doing a presidential address from the Oval Office. And so traditional news judgment and deference to the president suggested that they had to do it. And interestingly, they all made the exact same calculation and decision. Uh, there wasn't a single one of them that said, wait a minute, this, this doesn't really make sense and, and made a different decision. They all, they all agreed universally. Um, but yet, as you say, and, and as I write uh, in my piece today, four years ago, uh, Barack Obama wanted to uh, use a uh, White House address uh, in prime time to lay out a series of 
uh, immigration policies, real changes uh, to uh, the way in which the immigration system worked that would have an impact on millions of people, uh, and they decided that uh, they weren't going to cover that. The broadcast outlets uh, were in the middle of the sweeps week, uh, and they decided they would rather put out their usual stuff rather than uh, give over time to the White House or to discuss these things. And so what you see there is the argument that they're making isn't an honest one. There isn't a, there may be a tendency towards assuming that an address uh, from the president is newsworthy enough to uh, turn over your airwaves, but it's not a hard and fast rule that's never been broken. Uh, and so we ended up what, with what we had last night with the president of the United States on every single network uh, offering no new policy solutions, offering uh, no new ideas, simply uh, giving the public a new version of what he's been saying about immigration for the last three years. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's really disappointing that all these networks uh, decided to participate in what was a fairly obvious disinformation campaign coming out of the White House. Is it simply because of ratings? They think it's going to get ratings? Are they cowed by this president? I mean, what explains I this? Know. I mean, specifically, uh, you know, Politico had reported when they turned down Obama's request for time back in 2014, it was because the speech was going to be, quote, overtly political. I mean, you know, what happened on Tuesday night was certainly overtly political. This whole mess is. So I, I'm i still trying to figure out, you know, how, how to explain this. Is it ratings? Is it fear of Republicans because the, the GOP has been working the refs for so long? I mean, really, what does explain this? So I'm skeptical of the uh, ratings argument, uh, and this is why I think we end up trying to use it both ways. In 2014, I think there's a pretty, uh, you know, understandable argument that uh, the executives wanted to show their regular programming during sweeps week, mm -hmm. and so they didn't want to give overtime to the White House. I don't think that they decided to do the opposite this time because they thought that Trump was a bigger draw than Obama was in some real way. I don't really think that makes sense. Um, I, I don't think that you necessarily get a bigger ratings bump if you're all doing the same thing. I think the cowardice argument is a lot stronger. I, I think that, uh, you know, these news executives get kicked around by the president on a fairly regular basis, uh, and they are fearful of the president and the right-wing movement that he's a part of. Um, they don't like being accused of bias by people on the right. They're much more responsive to criticism from the right than criticism from the left on these things, uh, you know, probably in no small part because they realize that the people on the right are, like, literally out to crush them. <laughs> Um, whereas people on the left tend to like want to make media outlets behave in, in somewhat better ways, mm -hmm. um, and and so I, I think that's what we ended up with. We ended up with uh, you know these people sort of buying into the idea that well it, you know if we don't give him our airwaves he's going to yell at us, and if we do give him our airwaves things are going to be fine. But you know the, the morning that the White House was asking for uh, this time, uh, the president was out on Twitter saying that. You know, journalists are the enemies of the people, and they're all fake news. So, I, you know, he's going to be back to that same yeah. thing before the week is done. Well, he should be, because it works, apparently. I mean, it, you know, it cowed all of the networks into covering this 
uh, nonsense speech that was ripped off from, you know, quite literally, directly from Fox News. Now, there was at least, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit of fact checking that that followed his remarks, uh, at, at least by the cable news outlets. How did the broadcast networks handle that? And can an argument be made, Matt Gertz, that at least a lot of folks saw some actual fact checks in response to these arguments that Trump and his supporters have been forwarding for so many years with uh, with little rebuttal there was some fact checking uh, on the broadcast after the fact and I, I think that is better than the alternative certainly i would have liked to see some sort of on-screen uh, fact checking happening during the speech itself rather than uh, what you end up with which is the president gives his opinion and then the news people give their opinion after the fact and then the democrats give their opinion i, I think that that gets uh, more confusing for the audience uh, and p- perhaps makes them less likely to uh, come away from that understanding what actually happened. Um, but, yeah, I mean, th- there was some fact-checking. That's, that's to the good. It's, it's certainly better than not doing it. But I think that this is sort of the long-term problem, right, mm-hmm. is, you know, how do you respond to a president who is deliberately deceptive and is constantly trying to uh, make people... Uh, believe in a reality that is different from the actual one. Uh, and it doesn't really seem like journalists have, uh, and, and news outlets more broadly, have taken the necessary steps in, in really changing the paradigm here. There's a lot more fact-checking, I think, than there has been in the past. I think that's good. Um, but I think we're going to need some more drastic steps than that if the top priority for these news outlets is actually informing their public. Well, I, I guess the question is, what would those n- new drastic steps be? Because I, I have uh, some sympathy, I guess, with the with uh, some of these news outlets in that I struggle with this every day myself, trying to figure out what is the right way to cover this uh, this presidency and this president. Uh, so, uh, do you have any uh, sense of how the the networks and and the media, I guess, more broadly, uh, could avoid this sort of thing in the future if. If Trump, uh, you know, again, asks for such time, what should they do, especially if it's an actual national emergency as opposed to a pretend one? I think if you have a real national emergency, there's some argument uh, for letting the president talk. But I think that they need to be very, very cautious uh, Mm. about letting uh, him otherwise have access to the airways. I, I think, frankly, there is no excuse at this point in time uh, for giving the President of the United States unfettered access to the public. I think they should not cover basically any of his speeches uh, live. I don't think they should be covering uh, his press conferences uh, and gaggles live. I think that these are all things that you can look at after you can wait for it to end mm-hmm. uh, and then you know actually think through what he said and if there was actually any news there. Uh, and then put that out with proper context and fact-checking as necessary. I don't understand what the rush is. I don't understand why there's such an urgency to just put the president on television when all of the people involved in in producing the news know that he's a liar who is going to lie. It's the most predictable thing in American politics right now, that if the president is talking, he is lying. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't think there's an excuse for journalists not to really, uh, you know, take that to its conclusion. They all got to beat Twitter, I think, is what they're trying to do. Uh, now, one last point before I let you go, Matt. Uh, they did allow 
uh, equal time, at least, for a Democratic response, which I don't think has ever happened before, uh, you know, following an Oval Office uh, speech like this. Um, did, did, did that help? And is, uh, is that a good precedent, at least, uh, to set for these kind of remarks? I don't know what kind of precedent it is, honestly. Um, it's the sort of thing where it'll be interesting to see what sticks and what doesn't. Uh, whether, uh, to what extent Democrats get a similar opportunity in the future, to what extent Republicans then demand it, uh, you know, if the next time there is a Democrat in office, mm-hmm. uh, we don't know at this point, I don't think. I, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, if you're going to give him access mm-hmm. for a nakedly political speech, I think you do need to give uh, Democrats uh, the same uh, access um, that he gets. Uh, obviously, you know, the problem with all of these sort of rebuttal speeches on, on a sort of uh, messaging level is that the trappings of the White House are much, much better than anything else you can get. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. you know, the optics of the president at the Oval Office desk versus Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer standing in front of a bunch of flags <laughs> favors the president. Obviously, that that's much, much stronger uh, with the State of the Union, which we'll have later this month, uh, which is, you know, the president with a audience of his supporters plus mm-hmm. Congress. Um, on the one hand, and then, you know, a Democrat, uh, you know, we've seen various iterations, like, you know, alone, you know, yeah. with a, a bunch of other people in a tavern or, you know, standing in front of an American flag on a stage with, like, a small audience in front of him. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. It never really works too well for the opposition. Uh, you just can't really match the, the power of... Uh, the, the trappings of the president well, uh, for a speech like that. You know, actually, you could, Matt. I, I remember uh, some years ago during the Bush uh, during the Bush years, uh, I, I called for it at bradblog.com. Uh, the, the Democrats are in charge of, of uh, Congress now, essentially, the House. They could not, uh, you know, dismiss the, uh, the proceedings after Trump gives his speech. They could have whoever they want to do the response do the response to the joint session right then and there in, uh, in, in, the, in, in Congress. I, I, I don't know why that doesn't ever come up. Seems like, a, a <laughs> seems like an easy one to me. But what do I know? Uh, let me ask you very quickly before I let you go, Matt. Uh, speaking of things we do not know, um, would you like to uh, foolishly predict how any of this finally ends? I'm talking about the shutdown and the border wall fight at this point. I I have no idea. I mean, I think at this point the risk for the president is that he's starting to lose Senate Republicans. Uh, you're seeing more and more of them starting to head for the exits and suggest that they would like this to end sooner rather than later. Uh, you know, I, I think the question becomes, uh, can he be talked down in any real way? I mean, the, the problem is that from a negotiating standpoint, he just wants to get everything that he wants in return for nothing, and that's not actually going to work. Uh, but I, I don't really know how you back him down from that. It's, it's a weird, weird situation. It is weird indeed. Matt Gertz, Senior Fellow at Media Matters. You can find his work at MediaMatters.org. You can follow him on the Twitters at Matt Gertz. 
But be very careful you don't accidentally follow that right-wing congressman, Matt Getz. Is that his name over there, Matt? Gates, something like that. Yeah, yeah I, I get, I get a lot of it though. <laughs> I know you do, Matt Gertz on Twitter, G E R T Z. Hey, really appreciate you joining us today, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Yeah, you know they they don't have to adjourn the joint session of Congress after the president finishes his speech. They could keep it going and immediately put on, uh, oh, take your pick, Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, whoever they want to deliver the response. They could invite Barack Obama. Oh my goodness! Back to deliver it. <laughs> Wouldn't that uh, be amazing the, if they the rebuttal. did that? Yeah. Well, that's it's an interesting thought, and and I'm pretty sure no one actually has thought of it. So. Go get out there. Tell them about it. Well, you're welcome, world. Go raise some hell. I tried about, what, 15 years ago to do exactly that. And Barbara Boxer, I think, if I'm recalling at the time, seemed quite interested. They never did it. But, you know, uh, don't do that stupid address after the uh, after the State of the Union where it's in somebody's house or in somebody's office or whatever. They control the house. Do it from the floor. Use it. All right, a quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I don't want to set the world on fire. I think Trump does. I just want to start a flame in your heart. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. I think he really does want to set the world. He is setting the world on fire. He does seem to enjoy burning things down. Uh, yeah, and uh, when California burns down, I think uh, that kind of makes him happy. Donald Trump on Wednesday said that he has ordered the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, to cut off wildfire relief aid for fire-scorched California until state officials, quote, get their act together, unquote, and do a better job of managing forests. How can it be that every Democrat in the U.S. House of Representatives is not demanding impeachment for this guy at this point. Uh, Huffington Post notes that the bizarre proclamation, of course, via tweet, furthers, uh, furthers the administration's attempt to pin the devastation from California wildfires on environmentalists while ignoring the clear impact climate change is having on extreme fires out west. In a tweet today, and this was before he threw his uh, before Trump threw his fit and walked out of negotiations with Democrats over reopening the the government today. Uh, you think he's sort of under some stress here? Uh, Trump wrote uh, billions of dollars are sent to the state of California for forest fires that with proper forest management would never happen. Now, by the way, uh, forest 
is misspelled both times. <laughs> yes, it's like, has no one stopped to tell him how to spell the basic word of forest? Two, it's got two R's and each time has a capital F at the beginning for some reason. I don't understand. Uh, He's it, talking about Forrest Whitaker, the actor. Yes, I know. Uh, who knew we were sending billions of dollars to Forrest Whitaker, the actor? <laughs> Uh, in this uh, rest of this tweet, he said, unless they get their act together, talking about California, which is unlikely, I have ordered FEMA to send no more money. It is a disgraceful situation in lives and money. Now, he since deleted that post on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if he's reposted it uh, with the proper spelling of the word forest. There was no further information on uh, the veracity of Trump's Twitter claim, Huff. HuffPost notes the White House and FEMA did not immediately respond to requests for comments on Wednesday. But FEMA, of course, is also impacted by the ongoing partial government shutdown. And as uh, Washington Post reporter Damian Paletta highlighted, they don't have money to send to the state at this point, thanks to the shutdown. So uh, the announcement comes as uh, California reels from one of its worst wildfire seasons on record. You'll recall the Mendocino Complex fire uh, back in uh, in July in Santa Rosa was the largest wildfire in the state's recorded history. It burned more than 450,000 acres. Uh, The campfire, of course, in November, the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history, engulfed more than 153 acres. It destroyed nearly 19,000 structures, most of them homes. It killed at least 86 people. So that's the FEMA money that Trump is talking about that he does not want to send. For the 19,000 families who lost their houses just before Thanksgiving. Uh, why is he doing this? Why did he? Why, why do you think he's suddenly doing this on uh, on Wednesday? What happened over the past day or so that may have made Donald Trump take to Twitter and decide that he doesn't want to send any more money out to California? Any idea? Well, I think it's a it's a fool's errand to try to understand what's going on inside of Trump's head. However, I yeah. think you might have a point that he's under a lot of pressure and he's probably really mad and very petulant about the Democrats denying him this stupid border wall funding that he keeps demanding. No, that's not my guess. What's your guess? On Tuesday, Gavin Newsom was inaugurated as the new governor of California. True. And uh, made a a darling inauguration speech, by the way. And I say <laughs> darling because his his kid, his little five-year-old, three-year-old, two-year-old. Two, oh, two-year-old? His youngest two-year-old toddled around on the stage. <laughs> the, like entire the entire time. audience loved it. He was the star, and it was adorable because he picked him up. You know, he was there with his dad, and it was always obviously a very loving family. His mom couldn't get him off the stage. It was cute. It was quite adorbs. But at the same time, though, he didn't mention uh, Donald Trump by name. He made very clear that he did not like what Donald Trump was doing and that he was out of his mind and all of that stuff. So that happened. He probably, I suspect, Trump saw clips of that on uh, on Fox News and then took to Twitter and said, God damn it, we're not giving any more money for these wildfires <laughs> to California. 
You're probably right about that. Now, as I understand it, he can't do that, that it would be illegal, and he's not allowed by law to retroactively pull back money after an emergency declaration has been made. That's an official legal declaration. It it can't be undone. Um, but I believe that he could potentially... If this turns out to be an official thing, which not entirely sure that it is, but if it were an official thing, he could conceivably deny future emergency mm. disaster declarations for California and for fires. Well, Chris D'Angelo over at HuffPost notes that uh, Trump has blamed the state's devastating infernos on everything from a lack of raking, you'll recall, to a non-existent water shortage. Uh, resulting from, quote, bad environmental laws. Uh, But the reality is that the federal government manages, the federal government manages more land in California than the state. And many of the state's worst fires have burned primarily federal lands, uh, as noted by the Reading Record Searchlight recently. Newly inaugurated, they note that newly inaugurated California Governor Gavin Newsom was among the state leaders that swung back at Trump's announcement. Newsom wrote on uh, on Tuesday, quote, disasters and recovery are no time for politics. He had announced an interstate partnership and a pair of executive orders to combat the wildfire problem. He said, I'm already taking action to modernize and manage our forests and emergency responses. Uh, In a post on Twitter, he said the people of California, folks in paradise, should not be victims to partisan bickering. You'll recall, of course, that paradise was basically entirely pretty much burned to the ground in that campfire last November. But that's where we are. That's the crazy president that we have. And it remains a wonder to me that uh, Democrats are, "Hmm, I don't know, should we, uh, I don't know if we should impeach or not. Are these impeachable offenses? Let's wait to see what Robert Mueller has to say about it. Anyway, uh, that's where we are. That's today's mess. Stay tuned for tomorrow's mess. (laughs) We will all look forward to that. Uh, Until then, thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer. My thanks to my uh, guest today, Matt Gertz of Media Matters, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated, always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site. Though wherever you get it from, we hope you'll uh, put in a good word. Like us, please, or a nice comment or a nice rating or something. Makes it easier for everyone else to find us as well. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Brad Blog. Find, follow, and share us there. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves every day. That's bradblog.com slash donate. We'll need it since we won't get that uh, FEMA funding we were counting on (laughs) out here in California. All right, that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 